John chapter 16 is where we will be. Now, before we begin today, I'd like to give you some food for thought. To be clear, I am not downplaying the virus, but I'm trying to keep it all in perspective. This past week, the death toll worldwide surpassed 150,000 people. That's worthy to take note of, but I still maintain we are seeing an overreaction in our world. I agree that certain measures need to be taken, but overall I believe this has been blown way out of proportion by the media. With that being said, every life is precious. Just ask the person who lost a family member to the virus. So I'm not trying to make light of this, but there are several different dates thrown around as to when the virus began, when it was first detected. I'm just going to kind of take the middle road on all of that and use the middle of December for sake of this illustration. So let's say it's been four months since the outbreak began. I want you to just consider this. On average, 150,000 people die every day around the world. It's taken four months to reach that number with this outbreak. During that time, an estimated 18 million people have died. And that does not include the abortions that have taken place during that time, which on average are 125,000 abortions per day. That would make an additional 15 million deaths over that same four-month period. This would be a total of 33 million deaths since the outbreak started. This means that the current coronavirus is responsible for 0.45% of the deaths since it began. While abortions are 45% of those deaths. There is something wrong with that picture. We're talking about preserving life and yet we don't protect those that are in the womb. I understand that some are like Woody in Toy Story when he told Buzz Lightyear, this is a perfect time to panic. But I maintain what I said months, a month ago. I don't believe it's a time for panic. It's a fact that the vast majority who have passed had pre-existing health conditions. By the way, does it interest anyone that the CDC, when calculating their death toll, will no longer use confirmed cases only? But they will now count probable cases just food for thought. Now, with that out of the way, please join me in John chapter 16 as we continue our series through the gospel according to John on Sunday mornings. Last week, we covered verses 7 through 15, where the main emphasis was the reproving work of the Holy Spirit, who reproves the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We considered the progression in those three areas of the Holy Spirit's work. First, we must be convinced we are sinners deserving of God's wrath. Second, we must be convinced of Christ's righteousness because our righteousness will never save us. 
And third, we must be convinced that Christ is mighty to save. Amen. If you missed last week, I would encourage you to take the time to watch that message, listen to it. In fact, I would encourage you to recommend those that you are friends and acquaintances with that don't know the Lord to listen to that as well. If you'll walk with God long enough, you'll discover some things. One is what Jesus told His disciples last week, and that's this. I've got a lot that I want to tell you, but you can't bear them right now. I can tell you in my life now, looking back over 30 years of being saved, over almost 20 years of preaching now, that I would never have signed up for certain things had I known what lie ahead. Amen. There are certain things that happen in our life and we cannot bear them if we were told that in the beginning. And we would lose heart. We would, we would faint along the way. We would be uh, tripped up. We would, be, we would stumble. And Jesus says, I have yet many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. And I, I just learned in my life that um, God is very merciful when He waits to tell us things as opposed to just telling us all at one time. And so just keep that in mind. This is still what we covered last week. And, and that's been true in my life in ministry. I, I will say this. There's been far more good than bad. Amen. But you understand how the bad sometimes takes the limelight. And so we've got to be careful about that. But um, the, the, the ups have outweighed the downs. But man, sometimes the downs can bring you real low if you're not careful. But Jesus tells them when the Holy Spirit of truth has come, He'll guide them into all truth and He will glorify Christ. The truth of Christ would be revealed to them as we'll see more next week. I thought we were going to get further than we are today. But I was actually going to attempt a personal record and cover like 18 verses this morning. And that became clear that that's not going to happen. So instead, let's begin in chapter 16. Instead of reading from verse 16 through the end of the chapter, let's just read verses 16 through 22. The Bible says, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of His disciples among themselves, What is this that He saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me and because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said, A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice." And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. These verses, they're simple enough for us to understand today. But to these disciples back then, it was confusing to them. Remember that the Holy Spirit of truth had not yet arrived. 
One of the proofs, as we'll see more next week, but we can already see here being hinted at, is the fact that they were confused about what Jesus said, and yet we can read that and understand it very plainly. Because the Holy Spirit of truth has come. And, and we can understand things uh, now that He has uh, indwelt the believer. And we can understand this passage very simply while they had a difficult time understanding what Jesus was talking about. Jesus had yet to depart, so the... But Jesus had told them that uh, it's expedient for you that I go away, so that the Comforter might arrive. Having the Word of God, having the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we can read this and we can understand immediately that Jesus is referring to His death, burial, and resurrection, and also His ascension. He says in verse 16, a little while and ye shall not see me. That's his death and burial. Then he says, and again, a little while and ye shall see me. That's his resurrection. Then Jesus says, because I go to the Father. That's his ascension. This is the gospel. Amen. The gospel didn't originate with the apostle Peter. It didn't originate with the Apostle Paul, but it originated with Jesus Christ. Amen? And so he's telling them here, I'm going to die. They're going to bury me. I'm going to rise again, and I will ascend to my Father. But his disciples in verses 17 and 18 are perplexed at Jesus' statement, and they essentially say among themselves, what is he talking about? Of course, Jesus knows all things, including our thoughts. And that's a humbling thought, amen? He knew their thoughts. He knew they wanted to ask. And so, in verse 19, he sees that they're desiring to ask him what he means. And so, Jesus responds in verse 20, Ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. I want you to think about how terrible it is that the world will rejoice at the crucifixion of a man who only went about doing good. He says, you're going to have sorrow. But the world is going to rejoice over this fact. And I would say overall, the world hasn't changed today. Their opinion is still the same. Uh, even in America today, there's now rejoicing when court cases rule against Christianity and against churches. There's rejoicing over that. Just think about this for a minute. The world rejoices when the Word of God is rejected as truth. The world rejoices when gospel-centered churches are stifled or even silenced. But why? Because everywhere the gospel has gone, the world has been a better place where the gospel has been received. Why is it hated? Why do people rejoice over the fact that it's being snuffed out here or it's being condemned there? Being forced underground over there? Human equality is a biblical principle. We recognize that we have been created equal by God. There's neither bond nor free, male nor female. There's neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. But we have all been made equal partakers of the promises of God by Christ. 
Now, I won't have time to elaborate on all these as I go, but if you'll study what I'm about to share with you for yourself, you'll see how people in Christ-rejecting societies have been treated throughout history, and it's not good. Just consider these following examples. In primitive societies, there were places, and maybe still are today, where cannibalism is practiced. But what drove that out? What caused that to be limited and to stop in certain areas? It was the Christian missionaries that went in there. And when they received the gospel, that practice ceased. Where Christianity has abounded, women have been elevated. Women are not just property in Christian societies. We are commanded to love our wives. We are commanded to care for the widows. And contrary to worldly belief, women in the Bible are very special. Just think of the fact that Jesus came through the Virgin Mary. God chose to use a woman to come into this world to save mankind. Don't ever let anybody tell you that the Bible condemns women. That's a lie. Just consider how women are treated in other religions. Consider how women are treated in caste societies. In these places, women are violated in the worst of ways and they often have no justice whatsoever. Women are often forced to marry and some are forced to do so as young girls. There is often polygamous practices. Women will have less rights. But in Christianity, women are elevated. Where Christianity has abounded, children are sacred. We see examples in the Bible of pagan societies practicing infanticide. And the reason our society has legalized abortion is because we are moving further and further away from God and rejecting Christ. But even still in our country, the pro-life movement is largely a Christian movement. Just consider some communist states where the gospel has been rejected and researched their laws on how many children you're allowed to have and the penalty that you'll face if you break that law. Read early missionary accounts of some of these places and you'll see how bad it can get when Christ is rejected. Someone's thinking, well, what about slavery? Well, certainly that's a more difficult subject to discuss as the term for slaves has changed down throughout the years. But I would say the cruel, inhumane Atlantic slave trade that most of us would think of, the reason I can tell you that that was largely a Christian movement that wanted to see that banned. Amen. And so I understand that's a hot topic and I've learned enough when to shut up and move on, I think. So we'll just leave that one lie. But I'll, rest, I'll tell you this, you can rest assured that had it not been for Christians, then that practice would not have ended when it did. We may not see the same kind of forced slavery today, but what we do see are things called human trafficking. And if you'll research it, you'll find that the top countries engaged in uh, various forms of human trafficking are nations which have rejected Christianity. And as America continues to reject Christ, we are rising higher on the list of those who are guilty of the sexual crime in human trafficking. In true Christianity, the elders are respected and they're esteemed in that culture. But as America continues to reject Christ, we're on the brink of telling our seniors who get sick, you're not worth treating. 
I can go on and on citing the benefits of a Christian society from Christians being more merciful and compassionate to emphasizing family, having better governments, better education, better opportunities in work, better sciences, having free enterprises, instilling a work ethic, creating music, art, and literature. And yet the world rejoices at the rejection of Christ and His church. It makes no sense. Now consider regimes in the past 100 years where Christ has been rejected. Consider men like Joseph Stalin of the Soviet Union. Consider men like Adolf Hitler of Nazi Germany. Men like Mao Zedong of the People's Republic of China. And men like Pol Pot of Cambodia. And you'll find an atheistic bloodbath responsible for millions upon millions of people. And that's what happens when a country and a nation rejects Christ. The Bible says that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Our God cares about the fatherless, the widows, and the poor. And where Christianity abounds, we find there's mercy in those areas. True Christianity views mankind as created equal in the image of God. Therefore, all life is valuable. Well, let's get back to our text here in verse 20. Jesus is letting them know He's about to die. They will weep and lament while the world would rejoice. But Jesus goes on to say that their sorrow shall be turned into joy. Aren't you glad the Bible still says in Psalm 30 and verse 5, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. If you'll stay with God, your sorrow will be turned to joy. Don't give up on God in the midst of sorrow. Don't throw in the towel. But stay with it. Keep walking with God. He specializes in turning our sorrow into joy. Jesus likens sorrow being turned into joy as a woman who has given birth in verse 21. Having sorrow in childbirth is part of the curse as a result of sin entering the world. Genesis 3.16 says, Unto the woman He said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Let me give some advice for you soon to be fathers. When your wife's in labor, that's not the time to remind her of the curse. I want to encourage you, don't preach a message when your wife is in labor. Don't even try to say that her sorrow will be turned into joy. In fact, just keep your mouth shut. Don't say anything. Don't smile. Don't frown. Just be there. I can tell you from being in the delivering room when my wife gave birth to our children that this verse is true. There's something about when that baby is born into the world that makes all the sorrow disappear. It's like magic. Now, I personally have a suspicion that magic wears off with the more children you have. I know when Sydney was born, Adrian, her sorrow was gone instantly. By the time she gave birth to Levi, I think I remember her remember asking her afterwards, Well, are you gonna be ready for another one? She's like, No, I'm good. Now I can't confirm nor deny that, but I'm pretty sure that's what was said. Jesus here, He essentially likens His death, burial, and and resurrection to birth. 
He had to be buried after his death, but he would burst forth out of the tomb as coming out of the womb, as it were. Hallelujah. The joy of a child's physical birth will fade because sin is in the world. But in reality, what happens after we rejoice at the moment of birth, what's, what's really happened is we've just brought another sinner into the world. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. 1 Peter 1.24 says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But when Jesus came forth from the grave, I want you to get this now, it was better than a child's physical birth because his life will have no end. He died once for all. And because of this, in verse 22, our hearts can rejoice. No man can take that joy away, the Bible says. Revelation 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Colossians 1.18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. He was the first to be raised to die no more. He's not called the only one. Amen. Because there will be others. He's called the first. And I can tell you that when you were born again, you were brought from death to life. And that life will never end. Amen. Though your physical body will die, the spirit which has been quickened can never die. It's everlasting life. It's eternal life. And no man can ever take that joy away. Preacher, you sound like you believe in one saved, always saved. Well, listen to what Jesus said to Martha in John eleven twenty six, And whosoever liveth and believeth in Me shall never die. Hallelujah. Jesus said, if you'll drink of the water of life I give you, you shall never thirst again. Jesus said, if you'll eat of My bread, you will not die. I don't know about you, but I have passed from death to life. Christ gave me eternal life, and I cannot perish. And the Father which gave me life is greater than any man, and I cannot be taken from His hand. Whoop! Amen. Look, there's only a handful here. We could run around right now. Because of this eternal life, my joy remains. Yes, I mess up. Yes, I still sin. Yes, I still battle my flesh. But hallelujah. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life and shed His perfect blood for the remission of my sins. And they have been removed, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. Never to be remembered again. I'm at peace with God because my standing in Him is secure by the blood of Christ. And if the blood of Christ ain't good enough to keep you, I feel sorry for you. Amen. Because I've been washed in the blood. Praise God. The death angel can't have me. Because now that the blood's been applied, he has to pass over me. Amen. 
But what if we sin after salvation? Well, I'm happy to read to you 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Think about that just for a minute. How did Jesus die for all sins? That's what the Bible says He did. Therefore, when you accept Christ, all those sins have already been forgiven. I'm not saying we don't have to deal with it after we sin, after salvation. We have to deal with it. Right? But He died for all sin. Hallelujah. Why do I have such joy in my salvation which can never be taken from me? Because when I was born again, the Spirit of God indwelt me. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is my earnest. He is my security payment. And God can never default. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, God cannot deny Himself. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, God hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Do you understand what this is saying? When we get saved, we are sealed. The Holy Spirit is our earnest. So you cannot break that seal until you go back to God. Amen. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, "...in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed..." You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. Praise God, I'm sealed, I'm preserved, I'm His purchased possession. We've got a joy that can't be taken away. That's what the Bible says in our text. You say, ah, but the virus is going around. There's a lot of other stuff going around too. But He was my joy then. He's my joy now. And He's going to be my joy forever. Be of good cheer, Christian. You're a child of the living God. And come what may, nothing can take that joy away from us. We can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. All because Jesus has conquered sin and death. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Oh, and by the way, He's coming back one day. Amen. He'll straighten all this mess out anyway. What a Savior we have. He is victorious over death. This would have made a good resurrection service last week. Uh, so I have to blame somebody who was a guest preacher that made it get off for a week. But in all seriousness, look, we have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to be joyful for. I know there's a lot of uncertainty in the world today, but don't let that stop you from rejoicing in Christ. We're saved. <laughs> What's the worst that's going to happen? You'll wake up in heaven. Amen. What a blessing this morning. I hope you know Him as your Savior. If you don't know Him, you're missing the peace and the joy that can only come through being born again. Let's pray.